Ard Maka, County Armagh, holds so much that is ancient and eternal. Voices and stories that carry a rich freight of memory and hope. Everywhere holds a welcome, a twist of memory and the unexpected. I mind a, a good mate of mine was drowned in Donegal. He was the name of Eddie Doherty. And I mind going to his, his funeral and all I could hear the fisherman saying was, if Eddie would have set a net round a mountain, he would have caught fish. <laughs> so, so it's a learned day every day on the land. Fish are always ahead of you all the time. Well, you would get fish the day he's gone tomorrow. And I would class myself as a good fisherman when I catch the mermaid. <laughs> Could anybody beat that one? <laughs> On the shores of Loch Ney at Gawley's Gate, Jerry McNally and his son Daniel are busy, their dogs not far away. In what was once a line of fishermen's cottages, now their workshed, they empty their fishing nets by hand, with buckets at their feet, roach, perch and pollen, and a fire blazing in the stove. The scene is almost biblical. I don't know what your first impression was whenever you walked through the door, but you just see the amount of fish sitting and, and nets and, and going back in time... You know, it's something that you don't really see now is people sitting picking nets and fish like that. You know, it's, it's a thing of the past. We have uh, a good fire going. If you have a good fire, you'll always have a visitor or two, but if the shade's cool, you'll be there on your own. Two or three dogs land at the fire here, and we can walk away here to whatever time suits says. Nights will be out here maybe till 8, 10, 11 o'clock at night. If the catch is good, they have to be put into the, the chiller. And that's what we're at now at this minute in time, just out in an ordinary shade at the side of the house. And you're doing it all by hand? And it's all done, it's all done by hand, yeah. And now, as I say, I have nine of a family, eight girls and one boy. And uh, You need to catch a few so, fish. So we need to catch a few <laughs> fish. And as I say, they all say that Jerry has plenty of money, but as I say, when you, when you tomorrow you have eight girls, there's not much left. <laughs> there's not much left to worry about. So as I say... So if only Daniel left the son, so he is is following the same sort of footsteps. So now you'll never become a millionaire on it, but you'll always get a bit of a loaf on the team. Even if people think you might. Well, as I say, looking around. <laughs> You're listening to The County Measure. I'm Vincent Woods. We're making a journey around Ireland 100 years after independence and partition to get a measure, to get many measures of all 32 counties. We're looking at place, landscape and the people who shape their lives within these boundaries of community and county. In this series, I'm hoping to get a fresh understanding of each county and its people as we shape a Radio Atlas of Ireland. Getting young ones to come to the lock is going to our biggest problem now. It's a harder way of living and it's a harder life. I go to different meetings there and most of the meetings looking down across the hall, you know, most men are 65 plus, all grey heads like. They talked about the, the eel 
been an endangered species. I think the fishermen are of endangered species. <laughs> As I say, he's interested in it. Little made last, you know what I mean? Round the locks, you and stuff, the, the fog and mist would be a, a long time of lifting compared to maybe up higher up on the on the land. But now you can get five days on it when you're going out in the mornings there and it's sort of half dark and big waves and stuff's coming over and hitting you and one thing or another. It can be unpleasant enough now, so it can, you know, you can get your face washed as I talk about. If it wasn't in the blood, you wouldn't be at it. The fishing's been in our blood and has just been passed down through generations and I went away myself to the building sites and stuff like that, but unfortunately they called me back again and I'm back on the lock now full time, so you still always tend to come back to the lock, so you do. So there must be something. There's something the lock calls you. There's a call in there, and even with all their bad weather and bad air lifts and bad, there's something there that draws. I don't know what it is. I can't. I can't just pinpoint what it is, but. We'll go across and see if we get a cup of tea now, boys. And then... <laughs> I was at a funeral one day and there's a woman getting married. And uh, there's a man, man made him a stand talking. And the man turned and he says to the woman, he says, he, he says to her, he says, that's a bad old day of that, isn't it? And she told her, and she says, it's better than a new day at all. How witty would you get? It's a bad old day, he says. She says, it's better than a new day at all. Hey, boy, Every county is a story. Armagh's genesis is with the pregnant fertility goddess Maka, who was forced to race the High King's chariot. After the race, she gives birth to twins and curses the men of Ulster. Ard Maka, the heights of Maka, today's city is built on seven hills, Ireland's Rome in shape, story and almost in ecclesiastical status. St. Patrick's First Church is said to have been here. The Vikings raided and settled. Brian Baru visited and is believed to have been buried in the grounds of what is now Armagh's Church of Ireland Cathedral. The county was carved out of the Gaelic territory of Oriel. It's a territory of disputed land and stories, twin narratives that pull in opposite directions and somehow manage to hold together. Twin spires... In a cathedral city, twin traditions and conflicting loyalties that can't shake each other off, fated to live together. My name's Shane Forster. I'm the Church Brand Dean of Armagh and Keeper of Armagh Robinson Library. So here today we are on the Hill of Armagh in St Patrick's Cathedral, which dates back, uh, or at least the Hill of Armagh dates back to uh, the year 445 AD when St Patrick built his great stone church on this site. 
We know that when he asked the local chieftain for this bit of land to build a church, he was rejected. And it wasn't until the chieftain, uh, we're told, took ill and Patrick prayed with him and he was healed that then he had a change of mind and he gave this site to the, the, the saints to build his church. So I would say initially he wasn't necessarily well received, but when they saw uh, what he could do and heard the message that he delivered, I think that changed their minds. One of the former Archbishops of Armagh was Archbishop William Alexander, who came here about 1896. His wife was the late Cecil Francis Alexander, famous for her hymn writing. Uh, she wrote, There is a Green Hill Far Away. But at Christmas time, we particularly think of her carol, Once in Royal David's City. The, the carol which begins every festival of nine lessons and carols the world out. Starts with a, a choir boy singing the solo first verse, the choir join in the second verse, and then the whole congregation unite for the time we get to the third verse. The tradition would be that at the Festival of Nine Lesson Carols, I say it starts the service, and in many places the solo verse, it wasn't quite known who would sing it, so everybody had to learn it, and basically the director of music would point his finger, and whoever he was pointed at was the person who had to deliver that solo. And you can imagine how uh, scary that must have been for any choir boy who was in that position. Having grown up in a cathedral uh, as a choir boy and been I'm ordained, what, 26 years to return in the last few years to be the dean of a cathedral is, I suppose, my dream job in many ways and um, because of its musical tradition, because of the history, dates back to 445 AD, so it's stone upon stone. A building that's been destroyed 17 times, it rebuilt every time. It was knocked down and attacked by the Vikings and plundered and so on. But the people didn't give up. They built again. And so here we are sitting in 2022 in a cathedral, a place of worship, with that sense that people have prayed in this place. They have sung in this place for centuries after centuries after century. So it's a very, very special place, a place where God is very, very real. You're listening to The County Measure, and we're in County Armagh. Daddy threw, Grandad through. So it was just, it was a matter of when Daddy was out practising, you were throwing the bullets back down the hill to him. So, plain and simple, that's how I get into it. <laughs> I'm Roisin Mackell, and I was the first Armagh lady to win an All-Ireland title. Sport is written into the spirit and culture of Armagh, the GAA as strong here as in any corner of Ireland. But the county also retains a sport almost unique to here and to Cork. Road bowling, or throwing bullets as it's known. Small, 
steel balls are thrown along the country roads in matches which are called scores. In Tully Sarin, not far from Awan Maka, Navan Fort, Roisin Mackle, champion road bowler, is out on the road to cheer on Eleanor Sweeney and Cleana Donnelly as they compete in the girls' under-12 Ulster Championship. Kelly Mallon is the Armagh ladies' football captain. She's also won 10 All-Ireland Senior Championships at the Bullets. Road bowling is totally new for me. Kelly, you might tell me a little bit about how is it played. It is a very tense environment. Hey folks, let's get going. Under 12 final. You're on a road basically with a lot of people. You're throwing, but your team will have to show you whereabouts in the road to throw and then you'll have someone signalling you know, whereabouts you want to target it to as well. Just straight hard bullets, straight to them. Straight into the heads of the back. As a spectator, you need to be reactive and move very quickly in case there's a shot that doesn't go to the... <laughs> to plan. <laughs> doesn't go to the expected target. <laughs> well, we have had a few incidents. I know uh, Thomas, Machine's uh, son, actually broke his leg from us. Yes, um, Thomas, he was only 10, 15 maybe at the time. And it was actually my brother who was thrown and... The bullet actually hit off a crack in the road and come scattering into it and unfortunately hit him on the leg. Broke his leg clean in two. Come on now, Alan, let it go. James is the last one. Come on. In a sense, this is like an entire community gathering around uh, a sport. It actually would be a very family sport, isn't it, really? Like, a lot of the ones that are thrown now, if you go down through, you know, down through generations, their fathers, mothers, grandfathers, all through. Put it down to the mark now, Tina. Get Good score. Kelly, I guess there is a particular kind of skill needed for throwing, especially for this sport. Yeah, it's definitely very technique based. Um, I know there's a couple of older folk that play the sport that maybe don't have the ability to run too much, but they have an excellent technique, so they're still really, really strong. Open up! We throw underarm. So I think it actually takes more out of the Armagh competitors whenever they're thrown because we take a longer run and throw underarm where the Cork ones, a lot of them just seem to take four or five steps and they actually, what we call, hinch. Hey, come on over. over to that side there, folks. Come over, come on, come on over. Their arm does full circle. Take one in there, yeah. And then they let go of it. So you have to be able to jump and land and throw all inside a couple of seconds. The timing is a big thing as well, the timing of letting go of the bullet. If you don't get that time to perfection, you're either going to hit the ground in front of you and it'll skate off the road or it's going to be lifted off you far too much. So you want to get a fine balance between the two and timing's really important for that. Oh, you get that right side, it's over. Oh, straight here now. Eleanor is from a bowling background. Clean is not. It will be interesting yeah. just to see. <laughs> oh, you tried it. You tried it. You tried it. Hey! Hey! 
as you grow up you're just brought into that competitiveness it's in your blood particularly with the GAA as well it's it's kind of the same thing with the cultural element of things tradition I suppose family as well yeah. is the main thing for us um, and, and if I quit the sport my father would throw me out so in London City, where I did dwell, a butcher boy, I loved right well. He courted me and my heart My name is Michael Hughes. I'm a writer originally from Cady in County Armagh. And the short piece I'm going to read for you now, though it's fiction, is very much inspired by the world I grew up in that time and place. It's called The Old Man of Drumlarg. This morning, I decided to go and visit the old man. I always said I would any time I was home, home where I grew up, a small town near the border in County Armagh. And then I never got round to it. But today, I couldn't find the place. And nobody I asked knew what the hell I was talking about. Which was very strange. Because I remember distinctly, every Boxing Day, up until the year before he died, when I would have been maybe ten, my grandfather used to drive me out to the townland of Drumlarg, where he was reared. And we'd walk through a beech woods, up the hill, to a standing stone, rough and plain, taller than him, but not by much, rooted deep in the soil. This, he said, was the old man of Drumlarg. And every year he told me a different story. It had been a sacred place of ritual for 5,000 years, standing there since long before the pyramids in Egypt. Even now, when someone from the factory below in the town got married, they were tied to the stone and pelted with eggs, milk and flour. He'd heard tell that if you took your wife there on your wedding night, you would definitely have a baby. But if the girl in question was not, in fact, a virgin, then she would never bear a child. Another time, it was an old mass rock from penal times, and it used to lie flat. But then, when a Protestant bought the land, so the story went, the next day the stone was discovered standing straight up on its end in protest. One year he told me it was the devil himself, in the form of the last snake in Ireland, trapped in the rock by St Patrick, and if the stone was ever broken it would be released and chaos would reign. I remember I pointed out a big crack across the middle, and he said that just proved the point. If we hadn't seen chaos by now in this part of the world, then he didn't know what the word meant. The last time... He said it was just an ancient memorial, like a gravestone, only we had no idea who we were supposed to be remembering. I'll always remember you, I said to him. You will, I hope, he said, but the people who remember you won't remember me. 
and that's why we leave a stone to mark the place. So this morning, wandering the woods, getting nowhere fast, I had to wonder if the old man of Drumlarg was no part at all of the local culture or history or folklore, but just a private myth he liked to play with, a little place he'd found for himself alone, belonging to nobody else, until he passed it on to me. And now I'm passing it on to you. If you're ever in the area, ask around and see what you can find. In the dusk of Armagh City, close to St. Patrick's Pilgrim Way, you catch sight of a still-life image through a faintly lit doorway. A man working in his small shop on Ogle Street, repairing shoes at a bench behind a low counter, his workshop set back from the street, boxes of shoes piled on shelves at the front. Shadow and light, and a solitary man serene in his work. The scene is timeless. The man, Liam Kerr, is a deeply respected and quietly essential part of this place and community. He has worked here for 30 years, continuing his father's trade and legacy. Hello, Liam. How are you? We could put a bit of a... Put a wee bit of solution on, on these here, and these wee heels are these set up to get this here done. This customer now he'll be he'll be coming, I think maybe tomorrow or Friday for these. These cowboy boots. This customer's uh, driving lorries and in, in these boots. Lacks a wee bit of a heel. I bought these shoes a year ago. Slightly too big for me, and they need the heels need to be redone. I tend to I tend to wear the heel. All right, they're very comfy. If you see again that you have these rubber sold materials where it's there when they're when they're built when they're made they're not made to repair. You know they're made. They want you back again to buy another pair. That bench looks. Well worn. And that bench, that bench is there as long as ever I meant. So did you grow up then watching your dad? That was it. That was my stall there. <laughs> <laughs> you stood and you watched, but that's all you got to do was stand and watch. It was a, a family of five boys and two girls. Like, and I seem to be the one that ended up here. You just don't know what's going to come through the door. I have seen a vacuum cleaner coming through the door before, <laughs> which we did do something with, like just what it was. Now I can't mean, but there was you do you do get you get some strange requests. 
So we've got them straightened up a wee bit there. The soles on. They should be very happy with Sweet those, man. Stitching. So that'll, that'll be another few miles. Yeah, It'll be yeah. another few miles yeah, in absolutely. those. <laughs> Next door to Liam Kerr's shoe shop is Red Ned's Pub, and it's a busy spot on a Friday night. Malachy O'Neill is a third-generation publican here, and I catch him for a quick word about life on Ogle Street. Technically, two doors down from the pub, it was a, supposed to be the original birthplace of St Malachy. Just up the side of the pub is St Malachy School, and just a stone's throw away to the left over there is uh, St Malachy's Chapel and there's a lot of Malachys. Nobody can pronounce your name. But Malachy O'Neill is a good Armagh name. Oh, yes, it is all right. <laughs> My grandfather actually came here just at the turn of the century, 1901, to work as a messenger boy. I've been pulling pints since I was 12, here full-time since I was 21, and just when I was 28, I got married, and my father died three weeks, three months later, so he was only 65. And I was just born in 67 in June when the troubles just kicked off. Obviously, growing up, we were inside uh, what was called the control zone. All the barriers in our area were locked at night at 6 o'clock and weren't open again until 7 the next morning. Uh, Sunday, they were closed all day. It was very hard even for us to get a car out. I remember distinctively when I went to Monaghan once, I was 18, I'd never been to Monaghan, and the barman said, "User from the north." And I go, "I said, um, how did you know that?" And he says, "Every time the door opens, he's all looking around, because we were all nervous wrecks, you know, in pubs." And uh, so when the door opened, it really went like that. You know, it was really funny the way he knew we were from the north. <laughs> I thought it was a funny way to do it, like you know. You're listening to the County Measure. We're in County Armagh. Coming up, a visit to the original home of the Orange Order, wandering the black paths of Craig Avon, stories from Schlieve Gullion, and the Armagh rhymers carry the light of midwinter. You knock at a door in Armagh and enter a terrain of myth, a ritual performance of conflict, death and resurrection. Open the door! Open the door and let us in! Duran, Duran, the king of Open the door and let us in! There was a thread on Twitter of the things that terrified you in an Irish childhood and we were second only to Oliver Plunkett's head. Open the door! So many people, especially of my generation, their first thing when I say I work with the Armagh Rhymers is, oh God, I remember them coming into school, I was so scared. In the second smallest county in Ireland, the Armagh Rhymers have kept alive the midwinter performance of mumming, where a group of people dressed in straw costumes go from house to house. A captain, two heroes who fight, a male and female fool and various others carrying with them music, good cheer and just a faint edge of disturbance as the year's light shifts and turns towards spring. As I was going to Lisbon, I met a wren upon the wall. I took my stick and I knocked him down and brought him back to Carrick Town. 
box under me arm, under me arm, under me arm. Have a little box under me arm. Penny or tuppence will do you no harm. Well, you're looking past the masks here. In the corner, you have a dragon mask. This is St. Patrick here, right? You can see the snakes and the shamrocks, right? This is Finn McCool. Oliver Cromwell with his long and copper nose. This is a straw bull. That's made of straw, twisted. Dara Vallely points out a number of straw masks used by the Armagh Rhymers, a theatre group of traditional mummers he founded in the 1970s. Dara is at the Rhymers' offices in Armagh City with the director Anne Hart and their programme manager Claire Jennings. St Stephen's Day, Boxing Day or Wren Day um, is the day most closely associated with the rhymers and the tradition and the Christmas rhymers is is really groups of, of neighbours dressing up in these fantastic costumes and straw hats and all handmade, all things that they had around the home, nothing particularly exciting about it, just to look as crazy as possible and to, to suppose disguise themselves so that there was a bit of mystery and, and they went from house to house knocking on the door, they would have been let in to perform on the kitchen floor, they would all have had their, their lines, their characters their bit of poetry, maybe a song or a dance. Well, this is a poem by John Hewitt, which catches what we've been talking about, the importance of the Christmas rhymers. It's an old woman remembers Ballynure, 1941, and she's reminiscing on past Christmases. The Christmas rhymers came again last year, wee boys with blackened faces at the door, not like those strapping lads that would appear times before, to act the old play out on the kitchen floor. At war work now, or fighting overseas, there's hardly one of these that will be back here anymore. It's brilliantly theatrical, isn't it? I mean, the sight of a group of men and women dressed in straw with tall masks and they become very, very tall with, with all the gear. There's the traditional mummer's play, which takes the form of... Good versus evil. It's a tale as old as time. So there's there's good and evil. Um, evil kills good. They call for the doctor. The doctor brings good back to life. Are there are there particular characters associated with the Armagh tradition, with the Armagh rhymers? Generally, St. Patrick would be there. You'd have a lot of the heroes of old Ireland would be there. Somebody told me the other day what she didn't know, that during the war, the Second World War, Adolf Hitler appeared in, in some of the plays as... Beelzebub mm. or Devil Doubt. Uh huh. The part of the part I do is is is, is Doctor Brown, you know. But in in the recent play, I also do COVID nineteen. Look out! Look out! COVID nineteen is about. I'm after your fingers and toes, and all through the night, me the little gear sprite. I'm working where nobody knows. COVID nineteen is me name. This is an art too, Anne, isn't it? I mean, the, the, what you do is is an art form. It is, and I think the maybe the unique thing that the Armagh Rhymers have done over the past 45 years is they have brought this folk tradition, this art tradition, out to really out to the people. And the, the, the first thing that inspired Dara all those years ago was that he would bring... Catholic and Protestant schools together in, in shows that they would be able to participate in and in fact they were the first group to, to do that in the north.
you don't have to look too far here to see conflict written into the land. Signs in Lurgan saying the Belfast agreement is broken, the deal is off. Or near Market Hill, the loyalist people of Ulster will not accept a border in the Irish Sea. Tricolours here, Union Jacks there. Two teenage girls on the street in Armagh deck our microphones and recorder and gleefully call out up the Ra as they pass us, laughing half defiantly. The moment has an odd mix of humour and clear intent, an unrecorded statement that merits recording. The room was a committee room for use by ourselves. But people were coming to us to say, look, we've never saw the inside of an orange hall or a lodge room. So we tried to set the room up the way a lodge room in an orange hall would be. Armagh is at the heart of so much history, ancient and recent. What I didn't know is that the Orange Order had its genesis here, at Sloane's house in the village of Loch Gaul, now a cafe and museum where visitors can sit in a replica Orange Order branch meeting room and it's where I meet County Grand Secretary Roger Gardner and Sloan's house volunteer, Leslie Bell. This is the lodge room, or set out as a lodge room. You have the table where the ordinary brethren will sit. You have the worshipful master, who's the, the chairman of the meeting, if you like. The colorettes, colour orange, he was William of Orange. Orange being part of the, of the Netherlands, as it is now. So that's where the orange comes from. It goes over the shoulders and, you know, down to, down to the waist. And there's one on each chair There's one on each chair here. And how often, on average, would a lodge meet? The lodges would meet once every month. And you might tell us a little bit, Roger, about some of these banners around the walls. The one across the way here, Sherry Groom, Loyal Orange Lodge. That banner features King William on his white horse and it's the fortunate escape. King William was wounded at the Boyne just before the battle took place. A lot of banners do depict him on a white horse, but I think that's folklore. Because being a king and being on a white horse at the Boyne, he would have been a prime target. And in fact, we would have two banners that depict him on a chestnut horse rather than a white horse. Leslie Bell, you're from Tandragee or close to it. I think a strong orange tradition where you come from. It is a strong uh, tradition for lambe drums. Mm. And it takes a very good man to drum them. Each drummer has their own rhythm, their mm-hmm. own timing. My wife's father was a great lambeg drummer all his life. It was one twelfth of July, uh, you know, at that age, you know, he was of her age, you know, and he had had, you know, heart problems from one thing or another, but my wife, she was getting concerned that he was drumming so long. He probably, uh, roughly, would have been drumming about an hour, and she, my wife wanted me to to try to get him to stop, but to get to ask a, a brother orange man to stop drumming, <laughs> you know, it would have been a crime, really, <laughs> you know. And is, is the 12th of July still, you know, the big day and the time around that? I mean, is that still a really yeah, important yes. time? I mean, Carney Armagh is the biggest 12th demonstration on the day. We have 150 lodges, 11 districts, almost 5,000 orange men and approximately 60, 70 bands plus 
maybe as many lambeg drums, 60, 70 lambeg drums on parade. People come together, have a picnic, and there'd be a, a, a religious service then, and then the parade would make its way back. Years back, away in the 50s and 60s, there wasn't the entertainment and things that there is no, now. Right. It was a social occasion for families to meet on the 12th of July in the field and get together and, and one thing or another, it was good then. Roger, I wonder how you feel the Orange Institution, the Orange Order now, draws in a broader remit of community. I think within this past 20, 25 years, it has opened itself out more to public scrutiny. The symbolism, the history, the culture of the institution. And I suppose what we've done here in Sloan's House is part of that. The door is open to everybody. I see Ukrainians, how they describe Ireland and Northern Ireland. And here is local people open them doors for absolutely different uh, peoples with no language sometimes, with uh, different views, because Ukraine is far away from Northern Ireland. Uh, local people understand the situation because it was here as well. The open doors of Armagh are something the Lurgan-based artist Katrina Zajcig also speaks of. She has been living in Armagh for many years, and has been distraught by the news coming from her homeland of Ukraine. She has started a campaign selling her artwork to raise badly needed funds for a new ambulance there. One ambulance, she says, can save many lives. I don't just paint in one style. I love to try different things, to play with colors, to play with shades, and uh, I am do abstract paintings because people can see what they would like to see. I lived all my life in Ukraine, and I'm coming here because love. My husband lived here, he's as well Ukrainian, and he moved to Northern Ireland 12 years ago. Christmas holidays, Ukrainians going to houses and singing them choral songs, and then people in the house need to give special kids sweets or money, you know, but you can't just come in and give me money, you know, you need to do something for it, you know. <laughs> At the moment, it's parents, uh, uh, friends, they don't have a light, they don't have a water, they don't have a Wi-Fi, they don't have a mobile contact. They are freezing, it's minus six, it's snowy, it's apartments, it can be 32 floors and no lifts working. Babies at home and uh, all houses don't have uh, gas, maybe, you know, they, they do just electricity, hob, oven, everything, and they can't cook. No, nothing like, you know. Uh, 
Uh, the used ambulance I checked, it's roughly 8,000. It can be more. Ambulance saved lives. For November, we raised actually 1,300 pounds, which is absolutely great. I think that it's the best what I can do from my side. What is will be, even if it's will be one life saved, why not? Why you don't do it? It is very emotional. And I would like to say big thank you to everyone for them kindness, for them goods and for them open hearts. Thank you so much for it. You're listening to the County Measure and we're in County Armagh. Craigavon was to have been a shining new city on the plain. The urban planners of the early 1960s in the UK pinpointed a few sites for new state-of-the-art urban developments. The land between Lurgan and Portadown was one. And the place that eventually became Craigavon was envisaged as a bright new place with jobs and industry and new houses and flats and a population of 100,000. It never really happened. They also planned a rather futuristic and enlightened transport network for cyclists and walkers, the long-abandoned Black Paths that are now being mapped by local man Stephen McNally, who's leading the campaign to bring the paths back to public consciousness and use. The strange thing, you know, you're, you're just looking at... It's just cars. Yes. It's just all cars, oh, yeah. you know. It's a, it's a very odd, odd place. Um, and looks, it's like some sort of Jay-Z Ballard book, you know, it's mm. quite cold. But then you come up onto the paths and this is where the people are, on, on, the, on the black paths. When this place was being built, the culture was, let's separate man and, and, and motor. You'll notice coming in, mm. you didn't see any pedestrians. Mm. Yes. You didn't see any traffic lights. Right? You didn't see any pedestrian crossings. So there's nothing nothing to stop the car, to impede the car. Everything's about facilitating the car, and that's what Kurgan is all about. So from Portadown, the whole way to Lurgan, that's the, the new city. Welcome to the future. This is our version of the future. This is what you know, the, the future was supposed to look like. It was just to, to facilitate the car. That was the utopia. And, of course, other things got yeah, in the way. Yeah, of course, yeah. But this kind of utopian vision for yeah. this future city involved really a very detailed plan for pedestrians, yep. for cyclists, for people to avoid the car and move around That's it. without the car. Exactly. Yeah. So there was a plan to have these underpasses, yep. bridges, ways that people could move, you know, separate yes. to sometimes maybe parallel to the roads, crossing them, yep. crossing under them, moving freely without having to Never, never to come in, never come in contact yeah. with the, with the traffic itself. In all, there were fifty underpasses or fifty something underpasses built, and these go right to the edge of Craigavon. So we go up to the left here. We're actually on the black paths now. You see the the cycling and walking signs there on the road. And you mapped a lot of this, Stephen, didn't you? Well, I tried to map all of it. It took about three months. It took about two hundred kilometres of cycling to cover it all and then going back to the office, mapping it out on Google Maps, and then trying to create some sort of map that, I suppose like a tube map or something that sort of 
uh, describes it. Well, that's what struck me actually looking at the map that you have made, which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. It looks like the London Underground yeah, map. You can yeah, look at the yeah, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's the only way to do it. It's, yeah. it's the only way you can sort of squeeze a lot of information into, yeah, yeah. into an F4. But it page. really makes it come alive. Yeah, well, that's good. That's, that was the intention. Always been a cyclist from, from a kid. Didn't start driving until I was sort of mid mid twenties, so the bike was always my sort of main way of getting around. And if you if you come to Craigavon as a kid, you've always sort of there's something odd about it, something strange about it. You'd see these paths sort of disappearing, these sort of rabbit holes. So it was always this: what what is all that about? So I suppose that's gone back to when I was a kid. About 15 years ago, I started a social enterprise, a not for profit, uh, called Cycle C Y C U L for Cycle Culture, and we run events and projects and different things to promote active travel and in particular cycling in the north here. I mean there's obviously a, a lesson for planners in this place. Yeah the car really didn't solve many problems, it created more problems than it solved. You know there's an alternative. Look, we came from Lurgan, we walked all the way over here. How'd you, how'd you get here? We walked. On what? Uh, our legs. I know but what, what on the roads? Um, no, the trail. The back trail. The black piles. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Good walk. Yeah. Good on you. Good and safe do you cycle at all? Yeah, we're coming here tomorrow to go to the leisure centre. If you're if, if you're born here and you grew up here, most people who grew up in Craigavon take this for granted. They can walk anywhere and they can cycle anywhere. That's lovely to see that. That we mm. we thought we'd walk over. You yeah. know, we walk for an hour and we walk back. You can't think of Armagh and not think of the great tradition of music and song, stretching back to the Gaelic territory of Oriel, the great harping and piping tradition, the voices of Sarah Makem, Tommy and Stephanie Makem out of Katie, Margaret Barry singing proudly at big music gatherings in Cross Maglen, the innovation and spirit of the Valley clan, and the splendid, free voice of Rena Connolly, who carries a rich legacy and makes it her own. Falsha, 
Shlieve Gullion in South Armagh is the highest point in the county. From here, on a clear day, you can see to Antrim, Dublin, Wicklow. This is the territory of Finn and the Fianna, Cúcollan and a wealth of tradition. Cross Maglen and Cullihanna are close. Brian Hoy has people on both sides of Shlieve Gullion. He's one of a small group of people who gather in Bridget Brady's Chochmallan. We're sitting right at the bottom of Sleeve Gullion. We're farmers and it's a farming landscape. And that's worth thinking about. Six and a half thousand years of farming history in, in this area. In Chop Mallon, an old buyer converted into a community kaleying house in the village of May, I meet Bridget Brady, who opened this door to past and future, determined to honour this unique place and its people. Chalk Mallon is converted from an old byre that was built to house maybe six cows in the 1960s. The walls are well decorated. You've painted little slogans on, tell me a story. There are many rooms in my father's house. Uh, different corners dedicated to different people's memories. I have a lot of artefacts, as you can see in here, that friends donated to me. And a cousin of mine gave me this. It's the urn on legs. And I said, Rosaline, for all the world, you would think somebody's ashes were in the yarn, and I put it beside the fireplace. You know, when we started here, people got it hard to say Chuck Mallon. In written in Irish, it was, they would say Teach Mallon, and they said, well, Chuck Mallon. We were in Chuck Mallon's the other night. It was a great night. So anyway, for crack's sake, one night somebody brought it up again about the yarn, and I said, oh, that's old Chuck's ashes in it. <laughs> so lo and behold, the next morning I happened to be listening to Benny McKay on the local radio station. But wasn't he telling the story about poor Chuck that had left Kalevi? He played football for Kalevi, went to Australia and was lost. But now we have his ashes back home in Chuck Mallon to commemorate him. I made a beeline up to Benny. I said, Benny, but you know, that's only a, a fictitious story. It's not true. He said, let it go. He said, <laughs> So there we had our title for the Chuck Many, many armies have travelled through this area, historically known as the Gap of the North, and that was for physical reasons because we still have the railway, the main north-south corridor running not too far from here. Partition, it's important to realise, it had a massive impact on this area. I imagine there are memories of, of what that meant, even within, within families and stories that don't necessarily make it into history books. You know, my grandmother was born in 1906. She would have always, for years, thought that everything was better in the free state. The butter was better in the free state. So there was that sort of, definitely that feeling of being cut off from your neighbours, because the, the parish itself was cut in half. You know, the border ran through not only town lands, it ran through houses, it ran through farmyards. My name is Karen McMurray. I teach Irish and geography uh, in Belfast. My grandfather was born in 1911. He was born just 
over what became the border in the townland of Aden Tubber in County Louth. Suddenly, within his childhood, somebody just plunked a, an international boundary between where he was born and where most of his family lived. And suddenly, you know, that trip to see your grandparents, your, your aunts, your uncles, you had to cross an international boundary. And everything that went with it was, whether it was, say, soldiers, whether it was customs. I'm a hill walker. For years, we couldn't go onto our own hills here because of British Army watchtowers. It was normality for us, but it wasn't normal. Helicopter gunships, three at a time in the air, wasn't normal. It's, I think it's fair to say in the South Armagh area, there's an aspiration for the border to be gone in all its gazes. Bridget, I'm sure you have memories of great nights in here. What were some of your most memorable nights here? Well, as you can see up here, we had President Mary McAleese visited us in 2009 and she wanted a little flavour of all that we do in Chalk Mallon and she did not want to leave. She stayed for the tea. She stayed for the tea and she would have stayed on, only her entourage insisted that she leave. And that happens, that and happens that to the best of us. That was a great sign, that was a great sign. I think it must be nearly time for tea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very I have a wee story about Norton, and I was told this by a man who, who actually is the, the star of the show. He was in his younger years a bit fond of a drink. As a young fella himself and a, a friend were given the task of going to England to bring back a great uncle's ashes who had died, bring him home, and the two of them got on the, the night boat from Liverpool. They did what they did. They got started drinking, took far too much. Came round the next morning, docked in Belfast, couldn't find the urn, couldn't find it. And they thought, Jesus, we're given the money to go to England and come back with this urn. We can't come home without it. So they went up to O'Kane's in Belfast, one of the undertakers, and they said, uh, can we have an urn? And they brought out this urn, that'll do well. And then he says, would you have anything to put in that? <laughs> A web of connection travels with you as you leave this county. Both Belfast and Dublin seem far away and close. Disputed ground maps itself in voice and story. Schlievgullion guards and holds stories and hopes in the south of the county. Loch in its vastness borders the north. Lovely, rich, northern voices welcome you in. Share memories, song, music, small, vast intimacies in time. It's as deep and full as the waters that carry a daily bounty to generations of fishermen. (laughs) 